I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. listening to okay let me tell you why you're wrong yeah you may have noticed that i failed to get an episode up last week and i apologize for that i i I hate breaking my scheduled releases and and as i always say i try to keep that to a minimum uh we've been coasting along pretty good so far this year and i want to stick to that uh so to make up for for the delays I'll, i'll i will be releasing this episode as well as the other episode i owe you guys as well as the regularly scheduled episode on friday so be looking forward to that today uh we're diving back into adam smith's the wealth of nations with book one chapter nine of the prophets of stock here adam smith continues to unravel the nature of the economy last time we talked about wages and how they're determined and as well as how wages relate to other aspects in the economy. This time we're looking at profits and how they tie into the greater whole. Smith starts us off with this, quote, The rise and fall in the profits of stock depend on the same causes with the rise and fall in the wages of labor, the increasing or declining state of the wealth of the society. But those causes affect the one and the other very differently. The increase of stock, which raises wages, tends to lower profit. When the stocks of many rich merchants are turned into the same trade, their mutual competition naturally tends to lower its profit. And when there is a like increase of stock in all the different trades carried on in the same society, the same competition must produce the same effect in them all. Now, in the last chapter, Smith talked at length, as if there's any other way that he might talk about something. He talked at length about the, and and I'm using my term now, the the tension 
between basically management and labor. Basically, labor wants to get paid as much as possible, and management wants to pay their labor as little as possible. No value statements added to either of those conditions. That's just how things are in a world where people operate based on self-interest. So here, we add to that tension a bit more by the fact that Smith feels that the very economic conditions that lead to higher wages will also indirectly lower profits for the holders of stock. What he's talking about here is the side effects of markets seeking equilibrium. If a new market opens up and is demonstrated to be profitable, then this will entice holders of stock to enter the market in order to get in on this new profitable venture. As holders of stock enter and invest their stock into the market, the demand for labor will increase because each owner needs to staff their enterprise. But now the market is full of these enterprises making whatever it is that they're making. And of course, in the world of economics, there may be an increase in manufacturers, but there isn't a rapid increase in consumers. So now these various enterprises have to compete for those finite consumers. And of course, in the grand scheme of things, there are only really two major ways to compete. Increase your product's quality, which costs money and research and development, or lower your price. Either version of competition is going to eat into profits. And so you have a kind of eternal economic paradox, where the very thing that caused interest in a given market, the, the prospect of high profits, causes those high profits to evaporate. This is one of those things that we'll come back to a lot in this podcast, this idea that as markets shift and strive towards their, their point of equilibrium, there will be these little windows that open up where enormous profits can be made. But that's not going to be the norm of that market, or any market. The equilibrium for the market will settle to a place where profit can be made, but a modest profit, tempered by competition. The problem, as, as we'll see as we, we keep going through this chapter, comes from a false expectation that people have in their heads that they, they saw a handful of people making crazy amounts of money while the market was oscillating during one of these windows where profits are astronomical. But by entering the market, chasing those profits, those people ensure that the window will rapidly close and profits will return to something much more reasonable. Again, I want to emphasize this because it does come up a lot in economics. It's going to come up a lot in this episode. The act of entering a market in pursuit of wild profits being made actively causes conditions that result in those high profits coming back to a lower, more normal rate. It's this kind of thing that allows people to see a kind of intention or intelligence behind the market. But we will get into the invisible hand in a later episode. Anyway, Smith next hits us with a little disclaimer, and it's one that's phenomenally ahead of his time. He says, quote, 
It is not easy, it has already been observed, to ascertain what the average wages of labor, even in a particular place at, uh, and at a particular time. We can, even in this case, seldom determine more than what are the most usual wages. But even this can seldom be done with regard to the profits of stock. Profit is so very fluctuating that the person who carries on a particular trade cannot always tell you himself what is the average of his annual profit. Now this is something that comes up in economics a lot, and it can be difficult for some people to wrap their heads around. Oftentimes, when confronted by an issue or, or when trying to answer a question in economics, you may know what information you would need in order to answer it, but that information may not exist in, in any kind of usual form for that purpose. There's a world of difference between knowing what data you would need in order to answer a question and actually being able to get that data. So instead of just giving up, what you can sometimes do is create a kind of workaround. When faced with an absence of data, you can sometimes look elsewhere to try to see the effects of the data that you're looking for. In one of our earlier episodes, Paul Laporte from the Bureau of Labor Statistics explained how inflation is calculated. And he pointed out that there isn't really a way to track the rate of inflation directly. But the BLS can create a decent estimate of what inflation is based on looking at increases in prices aggregated across the entire consumer price index. In this way, the BLS isn't tracking inflation, but because we know that changes in the price of goods across the entire economy and inflation are linked, and thus they move together uh, in a sense, we can safely assume that the changes in price reflect the fluctuation in the rate of inflation. As I said, this is a trick that economists use all the time, especially when trying to quantify things that strain our ability to quantify things. There exists out there, and, and you can rest assured that we'll be doing an episode on this at some point, a world happiness index that tracks and calculates quantified levels of happiness in countries across the world. That's right. Economists have quantified happiness. Now, obviously, you can't just pull up the data on how happy everyone is, but you can create an approximation of that data by looking at other data. Going back to the Wealth of Nations, Smith notes that in this chapter uh, that, that he has the same problem. The data he wants to look at, that being profits made over time by the holders of stock, doesn't really exist in any kind of form that would be useful to him. Quote, Profit is so very fluctuating that the person who carries on a particular trade cannot always tell you himself what is the average of his annual profit. It is affected not only by every variation of price in the commodities which he deals in, but by the good or bad fortune both of his rivals and of his customers, and by a thousand other accidents to which go uh, goods, when carried either by sea or by land, 
or even when stored in a warehouse, are liable. It varies, therefore, not only from year to year, but from day to day, and almost from hour to hour. To ascertain what is the average profit of all the different trades carried out in a great kingdom must be much more difficult, and to judge of what it may have been formerly in the remote periods of time with any degree of precision must be altogether impossible. But though it may be impossible to determine with any degree of precision what are or were the average profits of stock with, in the present or in ancient time, some notion may be formed of them from the interest of money. It may be laid down as a maxim that wherever a great deal can be made by the use of money, a great deal will commonly be given for the use of it, and that wherever a little can be made by it, less will commonly be given for it. So, we can't get an accurate rate of profit as it changes over time, but we can get the rate of interest charged for borrowing money which we can assume is directly linked to the rate of profitability over time. Or, as Smith says, quote, According, therefore, as the usual market rate of interest varies in any country, we may be assured that the ordinary profits of stock must vary with it, must sink as it sinks, must rise as it rises. The progress of interest, therefore, may lead us to form some notion of the progress of profit. Smith then proceeds to, to give us a history of the rates of interest charged going all the way back to the reign of Henry VIII. In these time periods, he is able to get a reasonably accurate sense of the interest rates charged, largely due to the fact that the monarchy of England enacted strict usury laws that set a ceiling on how much interest could be charged. Now, while this may seem like it would adversely affect Smith's assumption of interest and profit moving together, since an artificial price ceiling would impact interest rates' ability to freely mirror profits, or at the very least, impact profits in an equally artificial way, well, Smith's got an answer for that. He notes that the maximum rates imposed weren't done so arbitrarily, but they seem to have been based on what the common rate of interest was among persons of good credit, uh, at least at that time. Quote, All these different statutory regulations seem to have been made with great propriety. They seem to have followed and not to have gone before the market rate of interest or the rate at which people of good credit usually borrow. With his stand-in assumption in place, Smith then gets into the meat of his analysis. He, he starts off by observing the interesting difference between profits in large cities versus those in small towns. Quote, It generally requires a greater stock to carry on any sort of trade in a great town than in a country village. The great stocks employed in each branch of trade and the number of rich competitors generally reduce the rate of profit in the former below what it is in the latter. However, we can't forget about wages as a factor as well. Smith also adds 
to this idea that wages are higher in big cities because all of the businesses require labor and must often bid against each other in order to get it in the form of higher wages. Well, in the remote country village, there aren't enough businesses out there to occupy all the available labor. So workers bid against each other for work, thus lowering wages. He then expands his scope to, to compare the interest rates in countries against their, their national wealth. He, he starts with his homeland of Scotland, as, as he is so fond of doing, pointing out that while Scotland is a poorer country than England, the interest rates there are higher. He notes that the same situation exists in France, a, a country who, at the time, would have been probably less wealthy than England. But still, they, France has a higher interest rate. By contrast, Holland, a country which at the time is more wealthy than England, has a lower interest rate. Now, I think that the, the section on Holland here is worth reading its, in its entirety, since Smith hints at a, a few very important points throughout it. So, when it comes to Holland, he says, quote, the province of Holland, on the other hand, in proportion to the extent of its territory and the number of its people, is a richer country than England. The government there borrows at 2%, and private people of good credit at 3 The wages of labor are said to be higher in Holland than in England, and the Dutch, it is well known, trade upon lower profits than any people in Europe. The trade of Holland, it has been pretended by some people, is decaying and it may perhaps be true that some particular branches of it are so. But these, these symptoms seem to indicate sufficiently that there is no general decay. When profit diminishes, merchants are very apt to complain that trade decays, though the diminution of profits is the natural effect of its prosperity, or of a greater stock being employed in it than before. During the late war, the Dutch gained the whole carrying trade of France, of which they still retain a very large share. The great property which they possess, both in the French and English funds, about 40 million, uh, it is said, in the latter, uh, in which I suspect, however, there is a considerable exaggeration, the great sums which they lend to private people in countries where the rates of interest is higher than in their own, are circumstances which no doubt demonstrate the redundancy of their stock, and that it has increased beyond what they can employ with tolerable profit in the proper businesses of their own country. But they do not demonstrate that that business has decreased, as the capital of a private man through, though acquired by a particular trade, may increase beyond what he can employ in it, and yet that trade continue to increase too, so may likewise the capital of a great nation. So wages are higher, and wealth is higher, but profits are lower. And of course, business owners complain that because of their low profits, the country is somehow slipping into economic ruin, even though all indicators point to that not being the case. 
That sounds very familiar. But let's unpack this idea and see if it makes sense. Business appears to be booming uh, in, in Holland you know, in, in the 18th century. Uh, and with a boom in business, there's a, a higher demand for labor. But the population of Holland is small, relatively speaking. So business owners must bid against each other to fully staff their businesses. This drives average wages up and cuts into profits. But with these higher wages, the people of Holland are able to purchase more things and in some cases become holders of stock and thus stimulate their overall economy, leading to an increase in overall wealth. Now, besides the higher wages, the sheer number of businesses in this booming economy creates competition within their respective markets, thus forcing each business into a race to the bottom as far as prices of their products are concerned. This profit of constantly having to keep prices low to keep up with their competitors also impacts profits, and the profit margin for successful businesses has to be fairly low. Well, that sounds like a free market to me. And of course, business owners are going to complain about low rates of profit, because the ideal position for any company is to be a monopolist, with no competition and the ability to set prices at wherever will be the most profitable. It's in their interest to do so, and Apparently, going all the way back to the 18th century, business owners have been trying to convince people that the best interest of consumers are somehow wrapped up with the best interest of the holders of stock. But that's just not true. The best interests of those two groups are, are in a direct tension with each other. Consumers want the best quality products at the lowest price, and producers would prefer to not have to invest potential profits into improving quality and charge the highest possible price with no competitors to stand in their way. And again, I, I know I've said it before in earlier episodes, I've said it before in this, in this episode, but I will say it again. Neither of these observations are meant to be taken as value statements. We shouldn't judge businesses harshly for wanting to maximize profits. That is their nature. And we need them to have that nature in order for the whole market system to work. The key takeaway isn't that businesses are bad because they're greedy. The key takeaway is that we need to always go into these kinds of issues with our eyes wide open, acknowledging the incentive structure that exists and the self-interest motivations at play. Businesses will always try to maximize their profits by suppressing wages, uh, reducing costs, and eliminating competition, because that is will, what will make life easiest for them. Consumers need to always be aware of that nature and be wary of it, because as long as consumers don't buy into the complaints of businesses, the market system still works because consumers are the more powerful variable in this equation. The consumer has the ability to make a business owner rich or bankrupt 
by the simple decision of where and what they spend their money on. It's not important or, or frankly all that productive for consumers to to hate and despise businesses just to just instead to remain eternally skeptical of them. Don't forget without the profit motivation that that drives these firms the market system doesn't function either. So while it may not be steeped in nobility it's what makes the whole thing work. I think that it's also important to note that as Smith talks about lower profits, he's talking about the rate of profit. So while a place like England, uh, in his example, may be experiencing average profits among their businesses of 8 to 10%, businesses in Holland are only making 4 to 5%. But this is one of those numbers that should always come with a mandatory follow-up question, which is, of course... Four to five percent of what? Don't forget that if Holland's economy is more wealthy than England's, then there's probably more money circulating in it. So while a business in England making 10% profit may have a higher profit margin, if they're making fewer sales, then the balance won't do them much good relative to the company in Holland. If English company, if the theoretical English company does 50 million pounds in business, and, and, and I'm simplifying the equations for net profits here just for this example, their total realized profits are 5 million pounds. But if the company in Holland, with its lower profit rate, does more business, say 125 million pounds, then their realized profits at 5% turn out to be 6.25 million pounds. They have a lower rate of profit, but they're making more money. So the rate of profit is only really meaningful when you combine it with the total revenue that's being realized by that business. Okay, so box session over. Smith follows his examination of Holland with a, an interesting paradox that he sees over in the, the North American colonies. I will say that, as an American, there's just something that always kind of tickles me whenever Smith refers to the colonies. Uh, while The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776, you have to remember that most of it was written years before that. So his view of the role of the colonies with the, the benefit of hindsight of what would come to pass over the decade following the book's publication, is always a little entertaining to me. I don't know, maybe I'm just weird. Anyway, there's a particular situation in the colonies that, that Smith is interested in exploring, in that they're, like in many other burgeoning colonies, wages are high and profits are high. Now this may seem like an odd situation, but there's a thread here that, that, you know, when pulled on, it makes perfect sense. A colonial scenario, or, and again, we're talking about an 18th century colony. Uh, a colonial scenario has a few different factors at play than when we're looking at established economies, because the colony is in the process of achieving economic equilibrium. So things are going to get a little to use a technical term, weird, while this all plays out. 
a colony has simultaneously a lack of competitors. There's a few holders of stock actively operating in the region. Because again, it's, we're talking about, relatively speaking, a new colony. And those holders of stock are, are operating in an area with, especially with the North American colonies, a significant amount of untapped potential. Now, with that, they also have a lack of labor, as the colony is not fully peopled, at least to match its resources. In this early period, the high demand for labor will drive wages up, while the lack of competition will keep profits high as well. Of course, this dynamic won't last. As we mentioned before, high profits will incentivize other holders of stock to enter the colonial market, driven by their desire to also make such high profits, which will create competition, which will drive down prices, and thus profits. Likewise, the promise of high wages will incentivize workers to move to these colonies in order to get that better payday which will increase the total pool of labor, which will cause the market price for labor to go down as the supply of labor increases. But it's during this transitionary period where ridiculously high profits can be made and ridiculously high wages can be earned. Again, this is a symptom of any new market figuring out its way to, to equilibrium. However, this kind of transition often creates a problem in that too often the business conditions that existed during this early period become the standard that everyone, business owners and labor alike, hold up later uh, as a comparison. If you're a business owner making, and again, I'm making up a number here, but 20 to 25% profit during this period, as the market settles down, and trends towards a more reasonable equilibrium, you're always going to want to chase those heady days when you were making, uh, again, an insanely high profit margin off of your work. A sensible economic view will tell you that that's just not possible. And you, you caught a wave. You made a crazy amount of money, but waves don't last and you need to settle into a more reasonable rate of return on your investment. But that's just not how most people think. They don't see 25% as an unusual and temporary aberration. They see it as the goal. They see it as the bar by which all later year profits will be marked against. And they always want to try to get back to that point. But they can't not without cutting a lot of corners. There's a good example of this that, that, that comes up a lot when, when talking about the U.S. economy. Way too often, people will compare the economy today to what it was back in the late 1940s and the early 1950s and say things like, oh, how have we, we fallen so far and uh, we, we need to get back to those days. But this might just be one of the greatest false comparisons of all time. What people forget is that the late 40s and early 50s was the period immediately in the wake of World War II, a war which devastated the economies and manufacturing sectors of both Europe 
and East Asia. By the time the peace treaties were signed, the U.S. was one of the only industrialized nations in the world whose manufacturing capabilities hadn't been obliterated by years of war. As a result, while the rest of the world had to rebuild, the U.S. was the only one, they were one of the only sources for the materials that they needed in order to do so. So we were able to make ridiculous profits selling to the rest of the world. But as Europe and Asia rebuilt and restarted their own manufacturing sectors, the demand for U.S. goods gradually and predictably dropped because these countries were now able to supply themselves again and eventually export their goods again. And the global economy again drifted towards equilibrium, which meant that profits to the U.S. companies fell. Now, the correct way to look at this is as an extraordinary and very temporary situation. But, but to this day, Businesses in the U.S. will still look at those post-war years as a goal, as, as a status quo to try to get back to. And it's just not going to happen, at least short of another devastating global conflict. All right, stepping down from the soapbox a second time, <clears throat> Smith continues by, by taking us through some other permutations that markets can find themselves in that produce seemingly odd, but on the whole, pretty predictable results. Uh, he cites India as a place where, at least at the time, was, was seeing higher profits because of a decrease in the amount of capital stock available. As the stock goes down, the amount of co competition goes down with it, and profits increase. He then veers into the... the nearly prophetic pun, I guess, sort of intended, uh, when talking about what it might look like if a nation reached the highest possible point of wealth. This one, I think, is re worth reading in full. Quote, In a country which has acquired that full complement of riches, which the nature of its soil and climate and its situation with respect to other countries allowed, uh, it, uh, allowed it to acquire, which could therefore advance no further, and which was not going backwards, both the wages of labor and the profits of stock would probably be very low. In a country fully peopled, in proportion to what either its territory could maintain or its stock employ, the competition for employment would necessarily be so great as to reduce the wages of labor to what was barely sufficient to keep up the number of laborers and, the country being already fully peopled, that number could never be augmented. In a country fully stocked in proportion to all the businesses it had to transact, as great a quantity of stock would be employed in every particular branch as the nature and extent of the trade would admit. The competition, therefore, would everywhere be as great, and consequently the ordinary profit as low as possible. But perhaps no country has ever yet arrived at this degree of opulence. 
No country has arrived at that point yet, indeed. He goes on to say, <clears throat> quote, A country which neglects or despises foreign commerce, which admits the vessels of foreign nations into one or two of its ports only, cannot transact the same quantity of business which it might do with different laws and institutions. In a country, too, where though the rich or their owners of uh, or the owners of large capitals enjoy a good deal of security the poor or the owners of small capitals enjoy scarce any but are liable under the pretense of justice to be pillaged and plundered at any time by the inferior uh, mandarins the quantity of stock employed in all the different branches of business transacted within it can never be equal to what the nature and extent of that business might admit. In every different branch, the oppression of the poor must establish the monopoly of the rich, who by engrossing the whole trade to themselves will be able to make very large profits. Now in this chapter, the, Smith is actually talking about, uh, this is all actually a reference to China at the time, but I think there's some universal truth to be had there. Uh, Smith then points out the importance of laws and regulations in, in controlling and maintaining the rates of interest in a given country. It's a point that you won't hear many of the so-called free market advocates talk about, but, but it is an important one. Basically, a nation needs strict laws and, and, and a responsive judicial system when it comes to usury, or else risk interest rates spiraling out of control. Interest rates can be low when default rates are low, because the interest rate serves largely as a risk premium. If there are laws in place to punish people who refuse to pay back money that they had borrowed, then those laws will serve to keep the default rates low. But when money's lent and, and borrowed with no system in place to punish default, then the risk premium, by necessity, will go up. And that kind of dovetails us back into the idea of the connection between profits and interest. Uh, Smith writes here, quote, The lowest ordinary rate of profit must always be something more than what is sufficient to compensate the occasional losses to which every employment of stock is exposed. It is in this surplus only which is neat or clear profit. What is called gross profit comprehends frequently not only the surplus, but what is retained for compensating such extraordinary losses. The interest which the borrower can afford to pay is in proportion to the clear profit only. The lowest ordinary rate of interest must, in the same manner, be something more than sufficient to compensate the occasional losses to which lending, even with tolerable prudence, is exposed. Were it not more, charity or friendship could be the only motives for lending. He then returns to the idea of, of, of a country as rich as it could possibly be and, and offers an interesting comparison to, to what we have today. Quote, In a country which has acquired its full complement of riches, 
where in every particular branch of business there was the greatest quantity of stock that could be employed in it. As the ordinary rate of clear profit would be very small, so the usual market rate of interest, which could be afforded uh, out of it, would be so low as to render it impossible for any but the very wealthiest people to live upon the interest of their money. All people of smaller middling fortunes would be obliged to superintend themselves to employment of their own stocks. It would be necessary that almost every man should be a man of business or engage in some sort of trade. The province of Holland seems to be approaching near to this state. It is there unfashionable not to be a man of business. Necessity makes it usual for almost every man to be so, and custom everywhere regulates fashion. As it is ridiculous not to dress, so is it, in some measure, not to be employed, like other people. As a man of civil profession seems awkward in a camp or a garrison, and is even in some danger of being despised there, so does an idle man among men of business. And again, that's the, the, I think there's a, in that analysis, you're looking at, again, a very interesting mirror onto today and, and also a very a clear illustration of, of the, the type of society and the type of economy that, that Smith was speaking from. Again, we, we sit here today and, and yeah, at least in most of the industrialized world, it, it would be odd. Uh, the, the idle rich aren't usually looked upon very favorably or, you know, the few that are uh, still need to have a reality television show or, or a DJing career uh, for us not to, to kind of, you know, mock them for just living off their wealth. And, and you know, according to Smith here, that, come, that, that kind of thing comes from pros uh, uh, prosperity. Uh, and again, I, I, I just find that to be a very, very interesting idea. Uh, in, in tying this chapter together, Smith concludes with, with two very interesting points that I'm going to read in full. I, I know this has been a, a direct quote heavy episode, but, but Smith just keeps giving us solid gold stuff here. And, and I think that it's appropriate to have it in his own words rather than my sloppy paraphrasing. Anyway, he, he first establishes the, the causal direction between profits and interests, saying, quote, The proportion which the usual market rate of interest ought to bear to the ordinary rate of clear profit necessarily varies as profit rises or falls. Double interest is in Great Britain reckoned what the merchants call a good, moderate, moderate reasonable profit. Terms which I apprehend mean no more than a common and usual profit. In a country where the ordinary rate of clear profit is 8 or 10%, it must be reasonable that one half of it should go to interest, wherever business is carried on with borrowed money. The stock is at the risk of the borrower, who, as it were, insures it to the lender and four or five percent may, 
in the greater part of trades be both a sufficient profit upon the risk of this insurance and a su sufficient recompense for the trouble of employing the stock. But the proportion between interest and clear profit might not be the same in countries where the ordinary rate of profit was either a good deal lower or a good deal higher. If it were a good deal lower, one half of it, perhaps, could not be afforded for interest, and more might be afforded if it were a good deal higher. He then introduces the idea of, of what factors more greatly affect prices, laying out a, a, a very convincing counter-argument against those people who want to place the blame for higher prices on labor. He says, quote, in countries which are fast advancing to riches, the low rate of profit may, in the price of many commodities, compensate the high wages of labor and enable those countries to sell as cheap as their less thriving neighbors, among whom the wages of labor may be lower. In reality, high profits tend much more to raise the price of work than higher wages. If in the linen manufacture, for example, the wages of the different working people, the flax dressers, the spinners, the weavers, etc., should all of them be advanced two pence a day, it would be necessary to heighten the price of the piece of linen only by a number of two pence equal to the number of people that had been employed about it, multiplied by the number of days during which they had been so employed. That part of the price of the commodity which resolves itself into wages would, through all different stages of the manufacture, rise only in arithmetical proportion to the rise of wages. But if the profits of all the different employers of those working people should be raised 5%, that part of the price of the commodity which resolves itself into profit would, through all different stages of the manufacture, rise in geometrical proportion to the rise in profit. The employer of the flax dressers would, in selling his flax, require an additional 5%, upon the whole value of the materials and wages which he advanced to his workmen. The employer of the spinners would require an additional 5%, both upon the advanced price of the flax and upon the wages of the spinners and the employer of the weavers would require a like 5%, both upon the advanced price of the linen, yarn, and upon the wages of the weavers. In raising the price of commodities, the rise of wages operates in the same manner as simple interest does in the accumulation of debt. The rise of profit operates like compound interest. Our merchants and master manufacturers complain much of the bad effects of high wages in raising the price, and thereby lessening the sale of their goods both at home and abroad. They say nothing concerning the bad effects of high profits. They are silent with regard to the pernicious effects of their own gains. They complain only of those of other people. And I can't think of any better way to close out the episode than that. As always, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, or again, let's be honest, if you'd like to tell Adam Smith why he's wrong, uh, come and uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, you can post a comment, 
suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, always happy to, to see those comments and posts. Uh, I'm sure that might change at a certain point, but for now it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good group. Uh, if you needed a, a, any more reason to join the Facebook group, I had uh, a few weeks ago posted the, the first uh, Okay, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong t-shirt design there. For those of you interested in getting some of that sweet merch, the It Depends t-shirt will be available soon, and I'll be posting information about how to get them. Uh, don't worry, second t-shirt design will be coming, possibly involving a certain economist and whether or not he said things first. So, be looking out for that. Uh, if you're not on Facebook, you can always email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Be sure to take a minute and uh, give the podcast a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, doing so really does help the podcast get noticed by more people. Uh, we've had a spike in ratings lately that helped to get us up to uh, the fifth podcast that appears when you search the word economics. So let's keep that uh, keep that up and keep the podcast in the top five. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, I do have another podcast out there. It's called Let's Plan a Wedding, and uh, it's where my fiancé and I sit down and discuss all the things involved in planning our wedding, uh, as well as weddings in general. And of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a topic episode, and then back in two weeks with The Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 10. We are 113 pages in, only 915 more to go. But hey, that's like 11%. Uh, so that's something uh, with that I'm Dave Yost and this has been okay let me tell you why you're wrong